Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Hi, everyone. I'm John. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. I'm so excited this week to be talking to Dennis Magda, who is the Director of Developer Relations over at Yugabyte. How's it going, Dennis? So far, so good. It's Wednesday, mid of the week, and glad to talk to you and talk to your your subscribers, your followers. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you too. So I start every episode with my guests' origin stories. I love hearing how people started out in tech and programming. Could we go back in time and hear about your origin story? My story was, it was a classic one. I joined their computer science slash development course at a university. I was studying everything from computer science, math, algebra, geometry, all that stuff that you need to know as a software engineer. But when I was on the third grade, I wanted to quit because the way we studied the computer science and uh, programming, most of the time you would code in C. And these days I love C for different reasons. But those days it was so boring. All of our labs, you would create an application that would run in a command line console. You don't have any UI. You don't have any visuals. You would basically took a couple of arrays, you know, some hash tables. You would shuffle them. You would produce something, run some algorithm. And that's it. And that was boring. I seriously was thinking about quitting this area on the third grade. But then when we came to the fourth grade, we've got Java. I got excited because what I managed to do with our Java application, those days we didn't have Stack Overflow. YouTube did not exist. We did not have any nice, you know, videos on TikTok or Instagram. Like you had only books. And there were a few books about Java. One of the books were written by one of our professors. I took that book and I read this and I just, you know, came back home from a lab. I just took that book and I created the first Java application with UI, with buttons, let's say with text boxes, and it would react to my touches on the, on the screen. Wow, that was amazing. And since that point of time, I went into Java, I started developing professionally, and I changed my attitude towards uh, the programming. What? turned C around for you? Because I love C. I actually still use it pretty frequently. But I know that a lot of the coursework around C was just like super dry and and really boring. Like, what, what do you use it for now? And why did your perspective change? So yeah, how did I... Uh, so my second introduction to C was when I worked uh, Sun Microsystems and Oracle. So after the graduation, eventually... I mastered Java. I knew Java really well. I was creating enterprise applications, all that stuff. And there, as a software engineer, I was very curious about the internals. I knew Java very well, but I wanted to understand how it works internally, literally, like how JVM and GDK is written, how it runs on an operating system. And eventually I joined the Java development group at Oracle. After the graduation, that was not Sun any longer. My journey at Sun started earlier when I was at the university. But at Oracle, I was building GVM and GDK for embedded devices and mobile phones. 
I was on the team that first was responsible for the multimedia component. For instance, you, you, you want to create a Java app that needs to play sounds. That was before Android. Then Android, you know, came in and took over. And you want to create some Java app, play video, just capture different something from a mic, etc. And I was developing that library. After Android became the top, the top operating system for mobile phones, Java ME Mobile Edition became just nothing. And we switched to the enterprise, like to embedded Java. I was on the team that would take GVM and port or move this GVM to that microcontroller, to another microcontroller. And when you develop GVM on GDK, when you build Java, especially for mobile or embedded devices, most of the time you code in C or C++. And that was the time when I fell in love in C because it's so complex and plus powerful language. It's simple. It's damn simple, but it's so powerful. And you can, when we were building applications, we would create, let's say, the next release of Java. And the way, the way we would demonstrate the next release, I could create a robot that would do something, or I would create some smart home meter and that smart home meter, you know, transfers something. And that showed me the power of C because I can build applications that can bridge virtual world with the physical world. So, and so right now I like, most of the time I code in Java, but I still, I would say that C and Java, my two top languages, I love them both. That's awesome. I don't know if you're familiar with this type of software at all, but I, got started many years ago programming MUDs. Have you uh -huh. heard of MUDs? Uh-uh. They're no. like online multiplayer text-based games. Okay. So like a Zork or something like that, but multiplayer. And they've been around for quite a long time, like since the, the 80s. But many of them are still written in C. And so mm -hmm. that was a big part of how I learned to code was like modifying these games and playing around with them. And and they're still around and they're quite a bit more complex than they were, you know, back then. But I always loved like almost like the rawness of it. Like, mm -hmm. You really have to understand everything that's going on, how it all fits together, you know, memory management, like all of this stuff that's really abstracted away in modern languages. And I found it to be really like interesting and fun and, you know, kind of cool. So I have a soft spot for it. Exactly. It's all about the way how you present the technology because a programming language such as this, such as C, it's also a technology product by someone, some bright minds, and you need to kind of find a way to so that people love it, people understand its beauty, right? And the best way to find the best use cases, like what you are saying, let's create a game, right? Let's show how that game works. Let's modify it. Let's show the benefits of what we were doing, all right? Like a GPS. And I have some modem for with a SIM card. Let me connect to them. Just write a short program and let me just, you know, send a text message. It's fun. Yeah. Having the physical component helps a lot too. Yeah. So I saw that one of the first roles that you had was as a Sun Campus Ambassador, which I have so many questions about. But I'm curious, like, what that was like, right? Like, this was before Oracle acquired Sun. It was pretty early days for a lot of what we now think of as DevRel. I'm curious like what that experience was like and what you learned from it. Yes, Sun as a company, it was so unique. It was a trailblazer in so many directions. Let created that first Java was one of the first true major successful languages that run on a GVM and you have garbage collector. They have some other wonderful projects in-house such as Solaris operating system. They have their own CPU, etc. 
but also the way how the company was executing, the way how the employees were treated, how they work with the community, it also was unique. So I was a Sun Campus ambassador. Remember that story when I eventually decided to continue with the computer science and programming. I just, you know, passed. That was probably six months in a row when I was studying Java. And the same professor, our teacher, he was well-known within the local Sun communities. And he kind of once came into his lab and he says, Sun Microsystems is searching for some student who wants to become a Sun Campus ambassador. And I don't know like, who that's going to be. And all you need to know is just to evangelize Java and other Sun technologies. Who wants to do that? And saying like, hell, I want to do it. And there are, but I'm the guy who barely knows Java, still barely knows Java, no any real experience in creating uh, applications. But I saw that as an opportunity to expedite my learning journey, because if I need to communicate this, if I need to explain students at my university and build a local community, around Java and other Sun technologies, then that would be a huge motivation for myself to become much more experienced in Java within a shorter period in time. So I took this role. I had a nice conversation with a hiring manager. And one of them, he knew that I'm not that experienced in Java, but what he loved is that I was a tourist guide. I lived in the border with China. And what I was doing from time to time, we would form a group and I would go with that group to China for several days. And for that hiring manager, that was a huge skill set, meaning that I can work with people. And he said, like, hell yeah, Dennis, go ahead. That's your role. And I spent almost two years at my university. Before I graduated, I was building, I built a local Sun Microsystems community. I was representing the company. We had one of the most successful university groups of Sun. Because Sun had around 100 groups at universities worldwide. And my group, my community was one of the top in the list. So that was a wonderful journey. And then later, yep, after my graduation, I got an offer to join the development team of Sun Microsystems. But after I got this offer, the next week, Oracle announced that it acquires Sun and all their hirings. There was a hiring freeze. And only a year and a half later, I joined the same development team, but at Oracle, not at Sun. What did you do for that year and a half? Like, I feel like in our community, I mean, a lot of that's happening right now, right? Like the, the macroeconomic trend is that there's a lot of hiring freezes. Things are moving more slowly than a lot of students mm-hmm. expected. Like, what did you do at that time? I mean, I joined another company. I worked as a backend uh, Java developer. Uh, those were the days when uh, Facebook became the thing and the many companies were building a Facebook killer. So I was building another social network, but for a specific niche use case, and it was successful. It no longer exists, but during those days, it was a huge bump for me as a Java developer. But I'm just so I was building, I was becoming more experienced in multi-threaded programming, in Spring ecosystem, etc. And then later, once the hiring freeze was lifted, I went ahead and joined Oracle. Yeah, that's really cool. I think that there's there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Like. There's always something to look forward to, even if it's not exactly what you pictured, right? Like, it seems like a lot of people had a certain vision of where their career was going, and now they have to rethink it. But there are other options. Exactly. And here is, yeah, this story might sound like, uh, oh, it's it's a so bright story. Lucky you, you just at the right time and in the right place. That's true to some extent. But at the same time, I mean, that was a bigger, let's say, I was so upset when I knew that, when I found out that I could not join my dream team, 
and I could do nothing about that. But anyway, like a couple of days later, I, you know, just updated my CV and I started looking for other companies. It took me, let's say, I failed probably 10 interviews as a Java developer, as a guy who was, and this is probably why, this is exactly why what you do, Jonathan, is really important because what you study at college or university might not be needed to real corporations, companies, and startups. And I failed 10 interviews before I joined that company. Even had to work as a PHP developer while I was looking for another company who develops in Java. But that was like with every interview, I was closing my gaps and becoming more experienced, experienced, experienced. And then I found my dream job after I joined that company. Because when I joined Oracle, I had to pass an interview anyway. And before interviewing at Oracle, I passed and studied for Java certification exam so that I can understand at least Java as well as those who develop it. So that was a huge lesson. And that's a good point. I mean, folks. Try to look beyond, because so, right now, those days, hackathons, they were not that widespread. There were not that many opportunities to contribute to open source projects. Usually, you would be assigned to work on your master or something like that, and that's it. But then once you are graduated, ah, that's the Wild West, and you face it, and you will fail, but it's okay to fail. You know, just stand up and learn the gaps, find out what went wrong, read, study, and carry on and carry on. Yeah, that's great advice. Certainly stuff I wish I knew back then, too. So I'm curious, like, you started out doing that campus ambassador role and sort of went back to engineering for a time, but then came full circle to DevRel. What was it that kind of got you back into DevRel, you know, 10 years later? Because I truly loved, I loved Sun as a company. I loved what I was doing because uh, Sun Campus Ambassador, think about uh, this role as a technology evangelist. Or you would, these days, we call those professionals as developer advocates. And your role is not just to evangelize, but also to assist, facilitate, right? To share feedback and to support. But uh, during the days of Sun, we didn't have developer advocates. We had technology evangelists. And I truly loved that role because that was an opportunity for me to code, to program, to create, and then share experience, like teach, share my experience, and also learn from others. But uh, after that, when I was, but not so many companies who had DevRel, like Sun had, and probably someone else had. That Maybe time. Microsoft or something. Maybe Microsoft, yeah, big, big companies, right? Big sharks, but not like it was not widespread. So that's why when you graduate those days, it was like 15 years ago, probably, or 10 years ago, I don't remember. No, you just, you can become just a Java developer or just some other developer. So I joined and then, but then what happened? I, Five years ago, I joined a company called GridGain, the company that donated Apache Ignite, one of the ISF projects, Apache Software Foundation projects. And that, like during those years, like five years ago, like developer relations became something noticeable. Many more and more companies started, you know, launching and forming and hiring for developer relations, like for developer relation groups. And I said, like, I was... At Grid Gain those days, I wore many hats. I was in the engineering. Then I eventually switched to customer support solutions, consultancy. And then I was running product management for a while. And then I, one day I'm just giving a call and I was presenting at one of the meetups in New York City. And I'm giving a call to our CTO and co-founder of Grid Gain saying, hey, Nikita, we need to do something with DevRel. 
let me just, you know, hand over this product and marketing stuff to someone else, but I want to focus on DevRel. We need to do DevRel. And he kind of, we were on the same page. He said, yeah, let's do that. And that was my return, my comeback to the developer relations. So technology evangelism of the sun days. So after that, so right now, I don't want, let's say, to, to wear any other hats. I don't want to run product management. I don't want to just to be focused on the marketing, but I want to be in DevRel. And for me, it doesn't matter whether where this DevRel or sits on the marketing, engineering, your product, it doesn't matter. You just need to have the right people in your organization and uh, move forward. Yeah, I completely agree. One of the things I noticed in your time at GridGain, I think still today, is that you got really involved with the Apache Foundation, right? And GridGain had directly donated you know, their project. I'd love to hear a little bit about the dynamics of Apache, because I think that a lot of folks get involved with open source but like the new way of getting involved with open source is that you go submit a pull request on like github or something right it's like mm-hmm. you don't necessarily understand the governance behind it so i'd love to hear about that yeah apache is a great was and still is a great experience unfortunately these days i'm not involved uh, daily in the apache software foundation matters and for our listeners just to differentiate because Mostly everyone knows Apache 2.0. This is the license that was created by the Apache and many projects adopted that license, but those projects might not belong to the Apache Software Foundation. It's a non-profit organization that, like, that is comprised of many communities and each community oversees a specific technology project. For instance, folks who are listening to us, it's highly likely you heard about Kafka, the streaming platform or Apache Spark, the processing platform, or Cassandra. Some of you used Ignite or, and Apache Pinos. There are so many projects that belong to Hadoop, Apache Hadoop. There are so many projects that belong to this foundation. And those projects are governed by independent communities. So a community usually is a mix of different people. And there are certain rules. And to be honest, for companies, for businesses, those rules are not ideal. Why? Because there is the notion of the Apache way. The Apache way basically says that everyone has this equal voice. And your voice, you need to own your merit at the foundation. You need to contribute. You need to good, you have to be a good citizen. Just contribute on your merit and you will be recognized. Your community can make you a committer. Then you can become a project management committee member. And then at some point in time, you can even become an Apache Software Foundation member and probably join the Apache Foundation board. And the way how contributors communicate and build Apache projects is really unique because let's say that I am an engineer and you are my team lead. So from the company corporate standpoint, you're my manager and your voice is the last, right? You decide what needs to be done. But when you come to Apache, everyone is equal. It doesn't matter that you report to me or I report to you. It was okay to see many debates and arguments on the Apache user list when a direct report at the company would argue and debate to his manager. And that was okay. And that was encouraging because you can state your stance, you can prove that you're right, and then you just go through that conversation and eventually you come to the middle ground to the best decision. And uh, this is how it's governed. Generally, many projects, if to take Kafka or Hadoop, they're certainly sponsored from the development standpoint by companies. There are independent contributors, right? 
but most of the contributors, they are paid to contribute to open source. And uh, when you contribute, when you become a member of your community, committer or PMC member, then at some point in time, you can leave the company, but you will remain in the community. And this is beautiful. So many companies don't like this because first, everyone is equal. You cannot tell the community when to release, how to release, etc. Many do this, but then they can be punished by the board and they will be educated. But nevertheless, I think it's healthy and this is the Apache way. So generally, as a summary, let's say those, if there is a company who wants to start another cool project that would transform, let's say, the industry or whatever, if you're thinking to make it an open source, you can try to join the Apache. It will be probably a harsh experience in the beginning because you would be learning a lot how to build the community, how to communicate in that community, how to run and develop your project, etc. But then you're getting a lot in return. You're getting a true independent community that can build and evolve your technology, even when you have some downside as a company like these days, like financial crisis, etc. And second of all, Apache Software Foundation is a brand. If you release under the Apache 2.0 license, it's cool, it's nice. It means that, let's say, your project is open source, but nothing prevents you from changing this license. And we saw that many companies did this. But if you are launching your project as an Apache Software Foundation resident, that's a huge plus to your brand because Apache ISF is a brand and that will help you a lot to grow. So it's like a two sides word. That's fascinating. Yugabyte is not, I know Yugabyte is open source, but it's not an Apache project. How have the like community dynamics that you saw in Apache, like how has that influenced your thinking about developer communities now? Yugabyte DB is, it's an, uses Apache 2.0 license, but it's not an ISF project. And uh, I don't know like why this did not happen. Probably one of the reasons because most of the code, like a big chunk of their Yugabyte DB code is PostgreSQL and PostgreSQL has its own license. And I'm not sure like if let's say you, if it's even possible to make Yugabyte DB a resident of Apache Software Foundation because Apache Software Foundation is very strict on the licenses and on their intellectual properties when someone wants to join that foundation. Yeah, the way the communities, independent communities, because uh, YugabyteDB has its own independent community. Because it's not governed by any other high-level entities such as Apache Software Foundation. But there are some of their benefits because as a business, as a company, you can change faster, you can experiment faster. Because at Apache, there are certain rules. There are the rules how you communicate. You still need to most of the communications happen on the mailing lists. Same applies to Postgres because community is so widespread geographically. Some people, when you don't make a decision, you know, like the same day, usually you need to propose a decision and wait for a couple of weeks before it's made. Because some people live in Japan, some people live in, in the United States, and everyone needs to find the time to read your stuff and to respond to you. When you run your own community, let's say you can use contemporary tools like Slack as a primary channel for communication with your community. You just, your community members will get an instantaneous response. You can do calls with them. You can define your own rules, how the community is governed, right? If something doesn't work, you can quickly break and rebuild it. There are always pros and cons. Yep, YugabyteDB doesn't have that, let's say, coverage of ISF because it's not an ISF project. You are not getting that extra plus 100 to the brand awareness, but still you are getting, you're more flexible in the way how you run and position and develop your 
community. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious a little bit about like the adoption of Yugabyte and like a lot of the educational stuff you're doing around it. So obviously like every developer encounters databases at some point and Postgres is incredibly popular. Y'all are, as far as I understand it, like building a distributed version of Postgres, right? That's sort of a improvement and a fork on the underlying technology. How do you sort of like build the narrative that this is useful to developers rather than, you know, rolling their own Postgres deployment or whatever they might do as an alternative? Yep. First, developers, you know, we, and I'm a developer, and before joining Yugabyte or before joining the Ignite community, I wouldn't say that I knew databases really well. So right now I'm paid to work with databases, and I have been working with distributed databases for the last eight years. But I would say that most of the developers then don't understand all of the internals of databases because we don't have enough time. We as developers, we have to iterate fast, we have some roadmaps, we have deadlines, and we have build, right? And there is an ecosystem of different frameworks, object relation mapping frameworks, and blah, 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 managed services that simplify everything. You just create your database, get a connection endpoint, and go ahead and build. So we don't have time just to look into the database internals. But if you look into the database internals, you will discover that, come on, databases are exciting. And for instance, if I take this feature of the database, I can optimize my code for this microservice can be like two times more optimal. Or come on, the database has this feature. If I use this feature in the past, then probably it would help me to develop that compatibility into my API gateway, let's say also two times faster, something like that. And what we do at YugaBiDB, that's an as of today, right? When we are recording this podcast, probably in the future, it will be as known as MongoDB or Redis. Right now, it's not, it's an unknown database, relatively. And there are like 400 databases out there, if to judge by the DB Engine's website rank. So what we do, first, my goal is to open the eyes of many developers and show that databases are an exciting component. And you want to learn databases. Because many think that databases are boring. They are commoditized. You have ORMs, like in Java, we have Hibernate or Spring Data or Micronaut. In JavaScript, you have SQLize or Prisma. In Python, you have Diesel. And those frameworks make, make it simple. They take your object objects and map them to database entities and we do all the hard work. That's it. But I want them to see the beauty of the databases, for instance, how that capability, how that index can improve your code or how that structure of your tables will make you more performant and you will pay less to a cloud provider for your infrastructure. So we educate when when it comes to our developer relations group. We talk about both Postgres and YugaBiDB because both Postgres and YugaBiDB, I see YugaBiDB as a younger brother of Postgres because Postgres was designed, it's a well-known relational database. It excels when it comes to single server deployments. YugaBiDB is for use cases when you want to run your Postgres across uh, multiple availability zones, multiple data centers. For several reasons, you can have... I don't want this conversation to lead into the YugaBiDB, but those of you who are, want to make a horizontally scalable Postgres for high availability, performance, or data compliance, check out the website, right? And the way how we excite, there are different formats. And there is different, let's say, milestone of a developer journey. If you want to excite developers, we can shoot a short video. You can shoot that, shoot that short video 
and publish on TikTok or YouTube Shorts. Or you can create some short article and post it on Dzone on Medium where you show, let's say, some advanced tips and tricks for Spring Boot or Prisma and also show how to optimize your Postgres or Yuga by DB-based uh, deployment. And that works really well. So this is how you want to get attraction of those who don't have time to look into the databases. Once people see, oh, yeah, databases, are, they're cool. They are as cool as Kubernetes. They are as cool as those, let's say, cloud services. Let me look into them. Then we have the other level of content that would help you to master your knowledge of indexes, of partitioning, of sharding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have builder workshops, blah, blah, blah. But usually you have to start with something small. You have to excite people. You have to show something that they have never th thought about. And that we are talking to engineers. We want them just to digest this, learn from the next, let's say, resource to dive deeper. So that's primarily how we act at Yugabyte DB. Postgres, Yugabyte, databases, and databases are an exciting component of your architecture. You just need to spend more time and to learn about them, and they will help you to learn faster. Yeah. I feel like you're excited about it, and now I'm getting excited about it. Like, I, it's funny, like, I've gotten to poke around in a lot of different databases, and you're right. Like, there's so many... There's so many levels of depth that you can get to that you won't in a typical application if you're just using an ORM. Like, I guess, like, when you think about, like, actually architecting database, architecting applications that use databases in the most efficient way, how much of that is sitting down and understanding the dynamics of your data stores and actually, like, crafting a database versus writing code? Right, because I think often those things get mixed together. Like if I create a Rails app, it creates the database for me, you know, and I don't think about it. But if I'm writing, I don't know, like Facebook, where billions of people are using it, obviously the database becomes really important, right? And you probably have specialists thinking about that, right? So like, how do you get developers understanding how they fit in beyond the code they're writing? Yeah, so here is, I would put it this way. With databases, especially these days when you have cloud services, you can run any database within a few clicks. It's like Amazon. You go to Amazon, you find the product you want to get delivered to you today, you click, click, click. The same with AWS or Google Cloud Platform or Microsoft Azure. Here is your database endpoints. Feed this database endpoint in your ORM framework and create your Ruby on Rails or Java or whatever application you're good to go. But then the problems usually start when you are approaching your pre-production test to production time. Usually most of the failures happen in production. If you don't have someone on your team who is already experienced in databases or who knows that, no, 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 you need to run this. You need to do very good production tests. And usually my advice when you are even in early development, start doing low testing, production level testing with some mock data or production level data as soon as possible. Because you will see that somewhere you need to create indexes. Somewhere you need to create a specific type of index. Because usually when it comes to relational databases, all of us know that there is the create index command you created. But that command creates a specific default type of index. In relational databases, it will create a B plus tree. In a distributed, many distributed databases, such as Cassandra or Yuga by DB, it will create LSM index, LSM tree. But there are different types of indexes such as GIST, Breen, then you have partial indexes, you have covering indexes, and you need to understand when to use which. So 
And that's okay. So my advice is if you are very new to databases, if a database is just a connection endpoint for you in some cloud environment, then at least start doing the law tests during early development. You will see gaps, you will see performance bottlenecks, and it's highly likely you would have a motivation, a need, not the motivation, a need to study databases. And then just through trials and experiences, you will become more and more experienced in databases. So that's usually the approach that we take. Not everyone has time. Again, not, I know that engineers, most of us, we have curious minds. We would like to study as much as possible, but there are so many technologies and databases are usually explored the last. Or you have a, an architect on your team who designs the whole architecture, selects this or that type of databases. But when it comes to the implementation, that's on you, on the developer. And the architect probably will consult you, but you need time, right, to study. But just take it easy. Do the early load testing as soon as possible during the development. Don't wait before, let's say, a month or a couple of weeks before the production. You want to sleep at night. You don't want to work at night. And then you will have enough time to, you know, gradually learn database internals. Yeah. I think everything I've learned about databases has been a result of some terrible production problem gone wrong mm-hmm. that I never thought would happen. Exactly. Yeah. That's it's better to be proactive. That's the life yeah, that, yeah. that happens. So to switch gears a little bit, I noticed that a lot of the content you're putting out has these really like cute little like cartoony diagrams. Is that something that like you came up with? Like where do those come from? <laughs> it was very unique. I like stories. I like when everything is explained as a story, not just uh, dry technical facts, because all those dry technical facts or tutorials or how-to videos are for the next step. As I said, these days, as of today, Yoga by DB is still a relatively new player. This company is very promising. That's why I joined this company. But still, we have to work hard on their awareness. We want as many developers as possible to learn about what we do, etc. And if you want to communicate, let's say, the benefits, if to use the marketing slide, the benefits and the capabilities of your product, you have to be creative and tell a story, show a story. And this is why, for instance, one of my talks, this is why I usually when I prepare for a conference talk or if I have, let's say, if I discovered something related to Postgres or Yuga by DB, it doesn't matter. I want to create a tweet or post on LinkedIn. I usually come up with some diagrams because we humans are more attracted and, memo- and easily memorize pictures. And when it comes to my sessions, to my stories, I come up with a story, for instance. There is one tech talk that I put together several months ago where I explain how Java, GVM, litters beyond the Java heap. Because when you run Java applications on top of a database and solid-state drives, the garbage, the garbage gets generated in databases and on hardware, and then you have garbage collector also in databases. And I created the story of a Java Joe. That's a software engineer who was tasked to create a service, like the IT solution for a new pizza company. And he selected one technology stack, let's say Spring Boot, Postgres, et cetera, and uh, some hardware. And then he experienced some of the weird stuff. He was doing tests. He discovered some of the interesting, annoying reports, et cetera. And then through that story, I am telling, and people like it. And I like to tell it this way, like a book, and people like to listen. And then if and this is the easiest way to communicate, let's say, the benefits. It's, it's like relatively high-level talk with a little bit of deep dives. The talk basically encourages you to learn more of databases. But if you want to encourage, just tell a story. 
and you can come up with that story. It doesn't need to be real. And that's why I just draw some different pictures, some graphics, and uh, that's what I do. Yeah, it's. I really liked the graphics because I felt like it made some fairly complex technical topics pretty accessible, right? Like I saw one, which I have no idea if this is even related to Yugabyte or not, but I saw one you did about how SSDs handle like data blocks, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I've like never thought about that before, but it's illustrated in such a way that I like kind of get it now, right? And you were demonstrating like garbage collection, which most developers don't think about because Java does it for them, but like, it's important, right? Like on a certain level of the stack, that becomes incredibly important. And I just thought it was like a really interesting way to like explain these super technical, like in-depth concepts. Well, mm-hmm. what do you use to actually like make the, the illustrations? Yeah, it's uh, Excalidraw. Uh, Excalidraw, a nice tool. I was introduced to it by my colleague, uh-huh. Frank. So he used it. I saw his slides. I said, wow, what do you use? Wow, nice. And it's easy to use. I'm probably one of the worst designers you will come across. So don't, you would get scared if you see my web applications, but with Excalibur, at least I can put together something <laughs> attractive and appealing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it looked really good. I'll have to try it myself. So outside of Yugabyte and outside of the work you're doing, are there any folks that you think really highly of that are creating like technical content or education these days? There are many people. So I usually follow, there is one uh, YouTube blogger, his name is Hussein. Sorry, I forgot. I failed to remember the surname, but we can, we can share the references. He yeah, is, we can like it. Yeah, he is interested in uh, data engineering in databases and uh, just networking many aspects. And he does the research and then he does wonderful overviews, breakdowns, videos, technical, etc. and written content. Then uh, also... One of the folks I like, I look up to is Tim Bergland. I know him. He doesn't know me. We didn't have a chance to meet in chat. He was the head of DevRel at Confluent, the Kafka company, and they did just an outstanding work. So his content is a great example of how you can communicate. He's a great communicator. And he can explain deep and complex technical concepts using the words that kids would understood. So just a couple of guys. But there are certainly many more experts who are much, much more experienced than me. But this is good because I do have, let's say, someone to look up to, to learn from. Because yeah. you have to challenge yourself, right? You have to challenge. You have to be an example for those who are new to the DevRel. But at the same time, you don't need just to relax and to enjoy. You just need to find someone who you can learn from, who yeah. can help you to become more skillful. So it's like Tim Bergland and Hussein. We will find his surname later. I love it. Thinking back to your your career and how you got started, what would you change generally about how developers are educated? Yeah, I have a skill wish. And that's my pain. You remember that I was, uh, when I wanted to quit on the third grade because all of the labs in C were boring and not appealing. So I think that if you go to college or university, I want C to be. I'm fully for C for being the first programming language you're exposed to. Why? Because C is the true language that would help you to study computer science internals, to write, to be as close to the hardware as possible. You don't need to write in assembly. It doesn't matter. But start with C. And with C, 
if to put aside all those artificial intelligence, virtual, like helmets, etc., you can create apps or solutions that breach, let's say, virtual reality with your real world. For instance, create your, buy a smart meter or buy Arduino, write some simple application, collect, you know, create your own alarm system, buy a web camera, create some simple app and you know, collect this, load this to Amazon. You see, because we need the people who would be building your, still the country and this planet needs people who would be in the embedded development, who will be creating cars, rockets, who would be working for manufacturers on factories, et cetera, et cetera, right? And at least you will be introduced to that. You will learn internals, you will learn how to program hardware, you will create solutions and applications that you can touch. Let's say your robot, your alarm system, et cetera. Then it's up to you how to move forward. It's totally fine to become a professional JavaScript developer, build those wonderful web services, or create the next generation iPhone applications or Android applications. Probably you've, you can fall in love in, in uh, iOS, or you just can write in Java or Python. It's up to you. But ideally, you should start with C and computer science. And what I would change, the classes should exist, but they have to be more engaging. Something that I can touch, something that will show me that, all right, this is the virtual application. This is my application code runs. And this is the metrics that I collect from the real world. And this is the actions that happen in the real world. The labs uh, have to be different. This is what I would change. <laughs> yes, I completely agree. I think that's very astute. Awesome. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left here. I really appreciated everything you've shared. I love how you think about all of this and how excited you are about databases. The question I always like to end on is, is there anyone like in the tech world, like let's think outside of DevRel, like tech more generally, that you'd love to just like take to lunch and pick their brain for a couple hours. I've heard people dead or alive or famous or niche or everything at this point. Oh, for instance, uh, Tim Berglund. Yeah, I definitely, I think that once one day it will happen, I would like just to take a seat with him and talk on DevRel on, on the way how we educate people. Also, I would be pleased to meet with some Microsystems co-founders. Yeah. Uh, one of them is Scott McNeely. He's still alive. He's actually one of their, he basically helps Yuga by DB also to navigate. Uh, he's not oh, cool. a, like yeah, an advisor. Like, that's right. He's an advisor. And I would be happy, you know, just to sit and to talk to him about the sun, about what happened, why that happened, why the company collapsed, what else did they have, et cetera. Because that was very, that company was probably born way too early. And yeah. they ran out of gas. Just two people yeah. out of my mind. That's fantastic. Well, thank you again, Dennis. I really appreciate this and really enjoyed our conversation. And I hope everyone who's listening did too. If you like this and you want to hear more, definitely subscribe and look out for more episodes. But otherwise, thank you all for listening and thank you for being here and happy hacking. Thanks a lot. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, 
Thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking. Thank <laughs> you.